Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. Just wanted to remind everybody, if you're interested in one of those hats I talked about, the weekly roundup, check out the Twitter poll and vote for which one you want. They're right now seem to be just about even, so I'm not really sure. I, I think if it ends up even, I would just pick the one that I want because I'm selfish like that. <laughs> but, but I really want to give you all what you want. So I don't know, maybe if enough people vote, we'll make both of them or something like that. But please, if you were looking for one of those hats, cast your vote. And if not, then there's probably going to be newer and newer hats coming up in the next couple of weeks anyway that, that are just retro RGB and not, you know, not the lag is real focused. But please, if you have a moment and you want one of those, cast your vote and let us know which one you want. First up, over on Patreon, Marcello Medini wanted to talk a little bit about the mono audio output of the Turbo EverDrive Pro's optical drive emulation. And Marcello said that Crix mentioned it's possible to mod a spark plug or DB graphics booster to get stereo audio through the ODE. Are there any guides how to do that? Not yet, because I'm not sure that's been finalized. I know Crix has been experimenting with it. I know there was a couple of different methods that he was thinking of for doing that, but I don't know if it's 100% set in stone yet. Once it is, then we'll definitely post something, a guide, a link to Crix's website, whatever, but we'll definitely let people know how to pull that off. But it's going to be with any device that has all of the pins on the back. So you're not going to be able to do this with uh, Turbo Express or a PC Engine Express or something like that. I don't think the ODE works on the duos at all, so that's kind of a moot point anyway. But uh, so I just wanted to make sure to mention that just in, just to kind of you know put everything in perspective. But yeah, you should be able to do this, and it should be a perfectly safe mod, meaning that you. You know, please, once again, this is not finalized, but as far as I know right now, if you bought your spark plug and you modded it to work with this and then you plugged it on another Turbo Graphics or PC engine that doesn't have the Turbo EverDrive Pro connected, it should still work perfectly fine. It should still work exactly the same. I don't know for sure yet, but this seems like one of those very easy, very cool mods to do that could just, you know, if you own a spark plug, which by the way, if you don't know what a spark plug is, it is a very uh, easy way of getting composite and RGB and stereo audio out of the turbo graphics. It has a Genesis 2 um, DIN on it in order to be able to use all the Genesis 2 cables like HD Retrovision, Rad 2X, etc. So I'll leave a link to that. But yep, no, there's no guides yet because it's not finalized, but that should be something that's coming soon. Jason Sherman wanted to talk a little bit about Thunderbolt protocols based on the testing and the experiments that I've been doing, and most importantly, the difference between Thunderbolt 3 and 4. And while I'm absolutely not an expert, I have spent a probably unhealthy amount of time testing and, and digging into this. And I believe, I'll leave links to my sources in case I'm reading it from the wrong places, but I believe the only difference between Thunderbolt 3 and 4 is its capability to hook up docks and its single device connection speed. So Thunderbolt 3 supposedly has a single device connection up to PCI Express by 4, so the same as a, a PCIe by 4 laned graphics card or capture card or whatever else. Now that is the theoretical maximum and theoretical max is never sustainable, which is why I was seeing, you probably need all of that bandwidth to get 4K 60 and I was seeing 4K 53 on average. So it's probably bouncing up against that theoretical max, but it's actually still pretty fast. And the only two scenarios, three scenarios today that you would run into 4K 60 uncompressed color video capture video output, 
and the fastest NVMe drives will use up more than that. So you're not going to be able to use the full speed of those drives through it. Now, Thunderbolt 4 was designed for docks. So that's why you'll see enclosures that are PCI Express to Thunderbolt only be Thunderbolt 3, because the Thunderbolt 4 protocol drops the single device connection bandwidth down to one PCI Express lane. However, you could plug a dock that's Thunderbolt compatible into it, and you should be able to get a lot more devices running at the same time because it's splitting it up throughout those four lanes. So I think Thunderbolt 4 was released because the companies that were making equipment realized that more people were using docks than anything else. And now that NVMe drives are up to 7K, that's that's something that's way past the speed of, of Thunderbolt 3. So I think they kind of realized, like, let's hit who this is for, who, who actually uses this. They're supposedly fully backward compatible. So if you have a Thunderbolt 4 motherboard, you should be able to plug a Thunderbolt 3 device in and run it at full speed. And that is definitely lining up with the test that I did because there's no way I could have gotten even 4K53 with one PCI Express lane. So for unless you're using a dock, I don't think that's really what you would use it for. Also, Tony Shadwick wanted to jump in and still thinks it could be a difference between PC and Mac and the way those use the, the PCI Express lanes and Thunderbolt. And you could be totally right, but there's just, there's no possible way I could test on a Mac. I could load Windows on a Mac, but that kind of totally defeats the purpose. Uh, and the main reason is there are no drivers for the Live Gamer 4K for the Mac because it was never officially released for that. So there's no way I could test it. Um, but, you know, this is really more of like a, a nerdy conversation anyway and less of a real world application because anybody that needs uncompressed 4K60 capture today should probably be running on a desktop, but not for long. Laptops are really freaking fast now. And I think we're today, right now, at the point where you could definitely buy a laptop that could handle that much processing power, but there's just sadly no way to grab it. So maybe if Thunderbolt 5 is released or USB 4.0, that'll probably be the time that we're able to do all this stuff. Next up, Raymond has an arcade cabinet that they thought was JAMA, but it's actually a Pandora home connection. They're looking to convert that to be some kind of Mr. JAMA-based solution, and they're wondering how they can get that done. Do they have to buy some kind of home connection to JAMA converter, or is there another way to go about doing this? So based on the picture, it looks like it's probably a proprietary connection, but also looking at your other pictures, this appears to be just an LCD monitor. So what I would guess, now I've never seen one of these, I've never opened it up, I don't know anything about this, but what I would guess is that if you took this whole thing apart, it's probably a standard flat panel with either a VGA or an HDMI or maybe even an LVDS connection in there. So you would need to figure out what that is first. If it's HDMI, DVI, or VGA, then the answer is so simple. Wire yourself up one of those controller to USB adapters. I've, there's so many out there. I just talked about a couple of them in the, uh, the past few podcasts. And you can get one millisecond of latency or less for those, which is awesome. And then I would just plug the mister directly into the flat panel. So you're essentially boxing up a standard mister solution. You don't actually need any JAMA connections. And if you're having this enclosed and you're not even streaming, you don't even need an IO board. You could just very simply get an HDMI to VGA converter if it's VGA or direct HDMI or whatever else. If it is a custom LVDS connection, you're probably gonna need a conversion kit like they use in the Arcade 1UP conversion hit kits. 
Um, it's going to sound crazy, but it's not. Check out uh, Justin Console Kit's channel. I believe he's talked about this a couple of times. But I guess I, I probably... Let me go back to the beginning for a moment. I think you need to decide what you want to do with this if you haven't already. Do you want this to be something that you could switch between a JAMA solution and the original Pandora's box? Or are you like, forget this, I'm only going to be using Mr. Or do you want to use Mr. and original arcade boards? And that last one's going to make things really complicated. So I'm hoping that your answer is that you just want to use a mister. If that's the case, take the advice that I just gave you. Just start by seeing what video connection is in that. Um, I'm going to scroll through super quick just to see, and I can't quite see what's in there. It looks like there is a VGA connector on there, but there's also a bunch of other wires and that could be something else. But if it's as easy as just uh, if that is really just the VGA connector, you should be able to wire this up very, very easily for, you know, a very small budget. Jonathan Levine said, with the proliferation of cool new accessories, carts, and add-ons being made for our old consoles, they started seeing more worries online about power load becoming pretty high and potentially becoming an issue for the stability or even the lifetime of these consoles. They mean even if all the accessories are high quality and use proper voltage, you can still overload it. So for example, if you have an NES with an, a NES RGB or RGB blaster, and on top of that you use an N8 Pro to play your games, and then in some cases a blue retro mod, a power LED mod, etc., etc., that means higher power than what it's been designed for is going through the 30 to 40 year old chipset of your NES. Or in the case of the FX Pack Pro for the SNES, they've read that some people would have power issues when combined with other accessories, or if the console or power supply caps are in optimal condition. Sorry if that sounds more like rambling than a question. They'd say their question is, what's my take on this? And am I aware of any measurements that have been made to test how safe the power load of these accessories are for retro consoles? So all of what you just said is uh, spot on, and there's a lot of potential for issues, but we haven't quite seen them yet. So yes, of course, you're definitely right, and the, the more load we put on all of this, the more stress you put on the the motherboard and all of the components. However, if you've swapped out the 7805 to a newer one, that's the DC to DC power regulator, you might be able to just alleviate all concerns. Now on the issue of if the console or power supply caps are in optimal condition, that could cause an issue. True, however, if you're having an issue with the power supply or your caps because you've added on a ROM cart and a RAD 2X, then there were problems with that anyway. That's not, you're not going to harm a good piece of equipment with that. Good point though. On top of that, the FX Pack Pro's power circuit is so efficient. If you take an SNES with the white line problem and you plug in an FX Pack Pro, the line goes away. And I tested this and it blew me away because I was having a hard time recreating the white line after always having the problem, basically my, you know, my whole, the end of the SNES lifespan all the way up till now, just to find out that the reason I was having a hard time reproducing it is because I was only using the FX pack, which is so much more efficient that it doesn't allow that issue to kind of go through. So while all of your concerns are very valid, uh, I don't think that I would personally worry about that quite yet. I would have everything within reason. I would use external power adapters where possible if, you know, if people suggest that. But, you know, I also would kind of take all of this stuff into consideration because like I always talk about when we discuss storing CRTs, 
you know, if you wanted to, you could store them in a, you know, you could completely rebuild them from scratch, clean them, clean every inch of them and put them in a, a hermetically sealed room that's always temperature and, uh, and humidity regulated. But then what are you going to do with it? Whereas I also would not say beat up on your CRT, leave it on 24-7, leave one attract mode on to burn it in. Like that's just terrible abuse of your monitor. So you got to kind of find a happy medium in between in order to settle on. And it's the same thing, my opinion, not a fact here, but my opinion is the same with consoles. Do you absolutely love your original NES and you've had it since you were a kid, you never got rid of it like most of us did, and you just want it to last forever? Buy a mister. Play your games on the mister. Keep that beautiful NES in good condition up on your shelf somewhere. Dust it off every time you go to dust your room and only pull it out when you want that original experience and then go beat up on your mister all day because that thing's probably going to last, you know, 20 plus years minimum. And it's a brand new piece of equipment with no emotional attachment to. But do you want to use your original console and you want to have these extra things done to them? Then you got to find a happy medium do a cap replacement, get a good triad power supply, replace the cap in the original, whatever you're going to do. Uh, make sure your voltage regulator is, is running well. You could uh, swap that out if you would like. Uh, make sure that when you do swap it out, you clean up that heat sink. And you put some good thermal paste to make sure the heat dissipation is good. There's absolutely steps you could take to make sure that you could use these things. And yes, of course, they're not going to last as long as if you used it once a week, all original, but What's the difference? Are we talking about half the life? I really don't think so. I really just think it's one of those things where you kind of got to decide where you fall. And there is no wrong answer, which is kind of the awesome thing. This is my awesome cop-out answer right now. There's no wrong answer. If you decide that you want to put that in a hermetically sealed box and never use it again and just look at it from a distance, that's cool. It's yours. It's a neat piece of history. Or if you really just want to use the heck out of it, if it eventually dies, you could do a full rebuild of it. Or even if you're talking about NES, you could even use an open Nintendo solution and just pull the chips out or something. So it's kind of a, it's a fun discussion to have, and I'm glad you asked the question. But this really kind of falls on all of your shoulders to decide how you want to treat your original consoles. Jason Guffey was cleaning out an old Dell UltraScan P110 monitor, and they've hit a couple of snags that they'd like some advice on. First, they sprayed all the loose dust buildup with an air compressor and then brushed the boards with 91% IPA and some ESD safe brushes. That worked great for the dust, but now they have a cloudy white residue all over their boards. Some searching suggested that it's some type of salt buildup made from a weird reaction between the IPA and the flux that was used from the factory, and that this is an increasingly common problem in the age of lead-free solder. It's common but not harmless, as the salt crystals can make micro-bridges that could damage and short out conductive parts. What do I suggest to clean it? Here's my guess that I've done before. If I have done the wrong thing to my board, somebody please jump in and call me a moron, but then also please tell me how to do it correctly. But I use flux remover, and I treat it the same way that you would expect a situation like this. I, would, um, it's, I have a flux remover pen, so I basically just draw all over all of the spots with that residue. And then I take the board that I'm using. Now I've mostly only done this on smaller boards. I think the largest board I've ever done it to was an SNES motherboard that was covered in factory flux without me even putting IPA on it at all. So I basically scrubbed it off with that a couple of times. And then I just dumped a tiny bit of IPA on it and scrubbed it with an ESD safe brush. And then it didn't come out. So I had to kind of dry it down with a paper towel do it again with the flux remover pen 
and you know re- rinse and repeat a bunch of times literally actually rinse and repeat and then after i patted it down and the motherboard was finally dry then i hit it all with compressed air and i left it in direct sunlight once again my direct sunlight idea is for the uv rays not for heat so you don't want to leave your motherboard out to bake in the sun all day i left it about 10 minutes in uh, the last couple times i did this wasn't in the middle of the summer so i wasn't too worried about it but the uv rays of the sun should have gotten any of the microscopic little bits that the air compressor didn't get and then i always just tap the board on my hands to make sure no other liquid comes out you could you could kind of feel it especially with ipa because it's cold um so that's how i've done it now if that was a stupid thing to do please by by all means somebody speak up but based on the knowledge i have i can't think of a way that that would be bad other than damaging components on it you know if you scrub too hard all the all the usual common sense stuff so i would try that um but i also wouldn't go too crazy so if this is a motherboard that's important to you, you know, it's obviously a board from a monitor that seems pretty cool. You know, if you've already done this and it's a monitor that's working well, there's no burn in, it's still nice and bright, you don't have to crank the brightness all the way up, then yeah, maybe you might want to take out the boards and try that. Um, you could just use a flux remover pen, let that dry, or use a flux remover pen and then kind of go over it with a brush so you don't have to remove it all, but it's not going to be easy. Now, as for cleaning the ribbon cables and wiring harnesses and stuff like that, I would mostly just wipe those down with a damp paper towel, damp with IPA. I wouldn't use water inside of a monitor like that. I'm sure it would be fine in the context of wiping down a ribbon cable that's non-conductive on the outside, but you know, why take a chance, right? For a couple of cents of IPA, it's not, in my opinion, that's not worth it. So a little IPA in a rag, wipe those things down, but I would not go crazy on any of the wiring in there unless you saw a reason. There was dust buildup, so less heat flow. Um, where the connector is, there was a lot of dust buildup, so you might want to unplug the connector and scrub that down with a little IPA. But once again, use common sense here, right? You don't want to spend 24 hours worth of cleaning on a monitor that's got a bunch of burn in. You know, you don't need to change every single wire or anything else. And Or maybe you do. Maybe this was your dream monitor and you finally got it and it's amazing. Maybe you would want to strip it down to the, the bare bones and clean it all up and you know, re- replace every capacitor and then you know, do all that. That's totally up to you. I don't have I don't have anything negative to say about that. You just kind of got to decide going in if you want to spend that much time on it. And lastly, the monitor comes with an adjustable plastic stand, but it's cracked. It does still work to hold the weight of the monitor, but they don't want to trust it completely with at least some basic repairs. My personal choice would be to use some very, very strong epoxy because I believe the way epoxy works is when the two liquids are mixed together and then you put it on plastic, it actually, for lack of a better explanation, like melts the plastic together. The chemical bond of it is kind of smushed into itself. And I've fixed a lot of stuff with epoxy, stuff that like I tried a couple other methods and it just didn't work as well. And I also think it kind of penetrates into the cracks as well. Like if you're, if the crack could actually move, like I would put a little bit of epoxy on, kind of wiggle it to get it inside and then add a little more to the top and the bottom and let it dry and definitely let it dry for 24 hours. But I had a, a virtual boy stand I fixed like that. One of the, the clips on the bottom broke. Um, so I was able to epoxy it and it worked great for years. That was like how I used my virtual boy. I had displayed it on the stand. So all of that pressure for all those years, it worked totally great. So I would definitely try that first. However, if there's any plastic experts out there, 
please let me know. Maybe somehow that might not be a good idea or there might be a better idea for Jason's situation. But that's personally what I would do, even if it's not the right thing to do. Brett Vecchi just got a full mistress set up and they're looking to create an arcade system that has a stationary cabinet that contains the monitor, mister, and power supply with a swappable control panel depending on the game. There will be a general panel that has controls for every game, but for specific games, they want to make recreations of the original control panels. First question, is there a similar project like this that already exists? I don't know of one, but that sounds awesome, so if anybody else has an idea, please let me know. Uh, if not, is there a resource that catalogs arcade cabinet dimensions, control layouts, and spec to specs to use as a reference? There's a few out there. I've just done some, some basic internet searching, and I found everything I need on different websites over the years for basically every cabinet. Um, I'll try to see if I could find any of the links, but some basic searching found them. This wasn't something buried in the depths of the internet. It was pretty quick to find all of that stuff. Next question, what would be the best control input option or adapter so swapping panels with Mr. is as easy as unplugging one panel and plugging in another? So you'd want to do a couple of things. First, you'd want to use one of those arcade to USB converters that we always talk about. There's a whole bunch of them out there, one millisecond, usually one millisecond of lag to do so. And you would want to put that kind of close to the Mr. And then you would want to build a wiring harness that goes from the input side of that to something, anything anything that has a plug connector on it. And then each of the control panels that you use, you would want to very carefully zip tie the wires together and have the matching connector at the end of it. So that when you're done with something, you could lift up the control panel, unplug that harness, put the new one in, plug that in, and now you have controls for player one and two and everything else. The only exceptions to that would be if you swapped out control panels with, instead of a stick and buttons, uh, a spinner controller, a trackball, and then you might just plug those in via USB, to be honest. That should probably be the best way to do it. So that's certainly something that would be kind of neat. Um, but other than that, I mean, you know, coming up with creative mechanical ways would be the only thing that you'd have to worry about. So how do you lift that control panel up? Are you unbolting it every time? If so, are you unbolting it and rebolting it into wood? Because then you're going to strip that eventually on the sooner side. Do you have some very cool latch method that you're going to design for this? So that's definitely something that's definitely something that you're going to have to think about, but it's totally doable, and I think it's a very good idea. What I would like to see is people with Astro City, new Astro City, like the one I have sitting over there, um, right now to change the control panel out. It is very similar in that when you lift the control panel up, they plug into, there, you know, there are harnesses that you plug into, but you still need to manually unbolt every one of those. And I think it would be very cool if somebody came up with a solution where you just like, you know, grab a, a thing to latch it and you could pull it off all as one I think that would be kind of neat uh, So, th but no one, as far as I know nobody's come up with that, but I do, I like where your head's at so if anybody comes up with something like this, please let me know because I think that would be a very cool idea Next, Adam Adam Ant said when taking apart a Dreamcast or PlayStation 2 they noticed a translucent barrier between the PSU and the heat shield on the Dreamcast They understand its purpose but what is the official name of that barrier and what material is it made of? Excellent question. I don't have the slightest clue. <laughs> Does anybody know what it's called? I think it's it's definitely some kind of plastic. Um, it obviously the most important part is in parts are that it is non-conductive and it won't melt under 
low low temperature heat so if it hits you know 110 degrees fahrenheit it's not going to just melt out underneath it but that's a that's a good question i have no idea what it's called does anybody have the official name for it and is there one thing that it's called or is it a different does every console call it something different do they call it a spacer or a shield or is there a real name for it it's a good question um, also, with the updated uh, OPL for PS2s, they were wondering if the ability to just drag the games over to the hard drive also works for PS1 ISOs. I have not tried, but my guess is definitely not because of the way Popstarter works. That's just a guess. If I'm wrong, please let me know because I would love to be wrong. I would love a drag and drop PS1 solution. But also, please remember that you're using a lot of emulation when you run Popstarter on your PS2, whereas when you put the disk in, it uses a lot more original hardware. So, um, you know, some people kind of scoff when I say that. They're like, there's no difference. And other people are like, there's a huge difference. It all depends on the game that you're playing. So I'm going to err on the side of caution for this one. But if anybody knows the answer, the official answer to any of that, please let me know. Seacon said, I've done a lot of coverage on video lag, but they were wondering if I've also investigated measuring and minimizing audio lag. In their experience, some home theater equipment can add 200 to 300 milliseconds of lag, and while not as jarring as video lag, it could still be annoying or even ruin some older rhythm games. Ideally, they'd like to have a quick and reliable way to measure audio lag so they can compare differences between modes on their receiver, their different devices, etc., etc. So yes, I have, but I've really only... I've only cared personally in the context of video capture to make sure that when you play back something that I would call an important capture, it's correct. So just a very quick side note, I put up a video on social media that says, hey, I'm having fun playing this new game. You should check it out. I don't really care if the capture's wrong, if the audio's wrong. I'm sure my, my fellow capture enthusiasts just get enraged whenever I do that, but it's not the point. The point is, here's the thing that I'm looking at. But on the flip side, when I'm having any archival footage, the aspect ratio always has to be perfect. The audio and video needs to be in sync within a few milliseconds. Everything needs to be presented the proper way, especially, you know, side by side captures. Here's an example of what things used to be like that stuff, especially historians should, you know, anybody that calls himself that should really be bending over backwards to get that right. But as far as playing in your own house, I haven't measured that too much and I don't really know if there's anything that could be done about that. So other than, you know, just hooking up a, a set of analog amp and speakers just to try to use it that way. I have seen a lot of receivers offer to add lag in order to line things up. Um, and some had a negative setting on there too. So I don't know if it was always programmed in with X amount of latency to compensate for your average TV's delay. And that's what the negative setting was, or I don't really know, but it's something that I just haven't really run into as much. So, you know, a lot of useless answers in today's Q and A, huh? Um, I just, I got nothing for you on that because there's just too many factors. You know, what is going between all of these things? Are you doing analog out of your mister into the analog in of your receiver? Is it digital out to digital in? You know, where is the latency coming from? I think there's so many individual factors that could be jumping into this that it would have to be on a per setup basis. But what I can say is testing should be fairly easy. Um, take if you have access to analog equipment at all, like for me personally, what I would do is I would take an SNES into or, or Genesis or whatever else 
into any CRT that I have and just plug a direct analog connection in and record that with my DSLR camera, mirrorless camera, whatever. And then I would slow it down and count how many frames from when whatever happened on screen to the audio. And then I would take the same camera, because remember, you always want apples to apples. Don't use two different cameras. And I would hook that console up to the home theater system and run the same test. And that's how I would determine latency. All analog into a, just an analog audio amp versus going through whatever the setup was. And then I would try to, to mess around and see where I could reduce the amount of latency. Is it because it's passing it through an analog to digital converter that's somehow adding latency? They really shouldn't, but you know. Um, and Or is it because you're using a digital signal and it's adding digital signal processing? That is potential for a few, at least a few milliseconds. Or is just the receiver you have a laggy receiver? Or is it a newer receiver with game mode that will turn off latency if you're in game mode? There's so many factors involved in that. So I'd love to hear anybody else's thoughts on it. But for me personally, the only time it has really mattered is when you know there was a bad setting on a receiver or if I'm doing some kind of archival footage that I want to make sure I get right. So for anybody who hasn't been listening to these Q&As, Oliver Clare has been building an amazing gaming room setup with both modern and retro stuff in it, but unfortunately just hit a little snag. Right after all of the walls were closed up, Oliver realized that they forgot to run a long HDMI output from the media rack room to the TV. They did run a bunch of Cat6A cables and a Cat8 and fiber cable from the media rack room to the back of the TV, so they were looking into ways to leveraging these cables for transmitting an HDMI signal over a distance of about 20 meters from the AVR to the TV while still maintaining 4K 120. So there was going to be a problem with that anyway. Um, you're, you're, well, you probably already knew this, but for anybody who doesn't, um, that long of a run for 4K 120 is far too long for that much bandwidth on a standard cable. So you would actually have needed an optical HDMI cable. That's why Oliver mentioned an expensive cable. Uh, but also, um, you would probably potentially need some kind of signal booster or transmitter anyway. So the fact that you have fiber run means that you might be able to do all of this, but the problem is latency. So a million years ago, I used to work with this company that did really high-end home automation installs, like their software charge was 100 grand, not, not a single piece of hardware. <laughs> And they were working around the same issues. Very long cable runs, distributed video, can't use HDMI. And one of the customers wanted a gaming room. And they, more importantly, wanted to put their consoles in like the basement and then have a choice of just grabbing a controller and playing a game on whatever TV they had around their house. And they came to me for help. And I said, it's never going to happen. If you need to move between your save games between rooms, you pick up the console. You have a, a really nice, you know, you could even build yourself some kind of dock if you wanted to, but you, you basically got to move the console and the controllers. And they, it's not that they didn't believe me, but they thought maybe they could find their, their own way around it. And they, they didn't because that doesn't exist. Um, at least they certainly didn't then. So now, now knowing that they planned their future installations with all of this stuff in mind, but they were able to find these adapters with no latency because that was the next problem that I talked about was even if you could do all of this, what's the latency of both the controllers and the video going to be? 
So I'm telling you all of that to tell you that there's a very good chance that what you need already exists. I don't know how expensive it's going to be, but I also don't know what the latency is going to be with that much bandwidth for a gaming setup. So maybe in your case, latency doesn't matter. Maybe where you want to run this is to a projector that you're never going to game on because all your CRTs or your gaming monitors next to it. That might not be an issue with your setup. However, it might. So what I would look for is to try to find some kind of fiber uh, to HDMI converter that is rated at no latency and kind of go from there and see what happens. If anybody out there is a high-end installer who's already worked on this stuff, please let us know. But my gut is telling me it's going to be pretty expensive because the, the stuff like that usually is. But I know for a fact that it was doable up to definitely 1080p 60. I, I haven't talked to that crew in a long time. Awesome people. I really need to call them. But I haven't talked to them up until the point where 4K 60 was mainstream and, and you know everybody was using it. And I certainly don't know about 4K 120. So if there's any high-end installers that might be able to help us out, please let us know because Oliver's setup is pretty awesome. But I think you were going to kind of have a snag there no matter what you did. Even those expensive $500 plus dollar, uh, optical HDMI cables are they ultra certified for 4K 120? You know, is there any other snags you'd run into? I just, I don't know because I haven't done it yet. So sorry, sorry that you hit a bump in the road, but I think you were going to have to run into something like this anyway. So there's been some interesting updates regarding magnetically shielded speakers. Uh, some, a lot of speculation here, but I wanted to share it with anybody who was interested. So just a very quick story on why I even went down this road. The speakers that are up front over there are made by the company Ascend Acoustics, and they're affordable for the money. They're ridiculously good. It's, it's, you'd be hard-pressed to find any speaker in that price range that sounds as good. Um, but they do offer better speakers for a lot more money. And I need to move, or I need to uh, move around my room a little bit more. And the two surround sound speakers I have in the corners are not shielded. So I need to put shielded speakers there because CRTs are basically just going to be all over this room. So I emailed the owner, the, the main developer of Ascend Acoustics, Dave, to say, hey, are your higher end speakers shielded? I couldn't really afford them, but I was just curious anyway. Maybe I could, you know, maybe I could just kind of aspire to get those. And I want to read to you Dave's response because I think there's a lot of good info in here. Uh, friendly emails too, so I'm just going to skip all the pleasantries and just tell you it was a friendly email. But Dave said it's getting more and more problematic for speaker manufacturers to offer fully shielded speakers. The additional bucking magnets required are getting very expensive, and there's simply no performance benefit other than shielding. So with typical minimum order quantities, it becomes a very large expense that hurts 98 to 99% of customers just to appeal to a very small percentage who need shielding for use next to CRTs. So what I took away from this was a couple of things. First, once again, it was a friendly email, not a middle finger in the air, you can't buy them, ha 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 email. Dave was friendly and everything. But first and foremost, that certainly explains why we're not seeing a lot more. But there is also a few other things I got from that. It sounds like maybe Dave isn't going to be magnetically shielding the speakers in future runs because of the cost. So if you needed shielded speakers and, you know, bookshelf and center, you might want to pick those up on the sooner side. Full disclaimer, I have zero affiliate codes. There are, you know, you can buy them direct from Ascend. I do not get a cut. I have no... There is no reason for me to tell you how much I like the Ascend acoustic speakers other than I actually do. There's no incentive here. So for, for those of you with trust issues, there's nothing here. Um, and I truly think 
for the price, these are some of the best speakers I've ever heard. For the price, of course, you buy a much more expensive speaker, it's probably gonna sound better, but I, with audio, you have to put that into context. So first and foremost, if you were looking for one, you might wanna jump on that now. Second, it also sounds like going forward, any kind of magnetically shielded speaker is gonna to have to be custom made. I still have those speakers up on the eBay store that I bought that were the wrong size. I seriously considered just buying speaker enclosures, mounting them in there, so essentially making my own magnetically shielded speakers, but I don't have the time for that. I'm not really good with wood projects. And also those should fit in Big Blue and Neo Geo cabs perfectly. So it just seemed like seemed like the wrong use for those speakers. So if you needed them, please check out the eBay store. They're the same exact ones that you could find on AliExpress and Amazon, but much cheaper than you'd find them on Amazon and about the same as AliExpress, but they'll ship from the US. And if you're in the US, they'll arrive the same week, not you know a month later or two months later. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically it. If you're looking to get magnetically shielded speakers, Ascend has bookshelf, so you could use them for front, surround, whatever, and a center channel speaker that are shielded at least the ones i bought are shielded so i don't have to worry there um and it, if you're looking to do this going forward we're either gonna have to find a company that specifically makes them for us or you're gonna have to find a company that will buy will add shielding to existing speakers will will make speakers from the factory and have them hand built for you but i think it's just basically going to be more expensive to get these in the future. I kind of wanted to warn everybody. So any thoughts on this, please let me know, but I just wanted to pass the info on. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q and A's, ask any question you would like wherever it is that you support, but please put it in the newest post. The way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, as you see here in every week, I like just kind of scrolling through and answering them in real time, just as if we were hanging out together somewhere. It's kind of more fun to do it that way. So any question you want, wherever it is that you support, just put it in the latest Q&A post. And as always, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible, whether it's just spreading the word or actually signing up for these monthly services. You're the one who's continuing all this work. So thank you all so much and I'll see you next week.